reading from the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. On page 80 in the Church Bible. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Zin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on and before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod, with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And uh, tonight we can focus particularly on the words of verses 5 and 6, where God says to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now we're continuing tonight with God's help to look at this incident that we were looking at in the morning too. It's one of the incidents that occurred in Israel's experience as they journeyed from Egypt to the land of promise. And uh, it is very important that we understand the relationship between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New. If we don't really understand the continuity there, then we're liable to fail to benefit from what is the majority of God's word. I think just for now, it's useful to emphasize two things. The first is that Israel, then, as the churches now, are the people of God. And they are called the congregation here in verse 1. <clears throat> All the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey. The Greek word... <clears throat> used in translating this into, <clears throat> into the Greek language is the word that's translated congregation now. It's church, basically. The Greek word is synagogue. The assembly, that's what a synagogue is. It is an assembly. And that word, incidentally, is used by the Apostle James, too, in the New Testament for the church. He says, if someone comes into your assembly and judges the rich and the poor, and he warns against that, but he uses the word synagogue. So a synagogue is an appropriate enough name for a church. For some people, it may be confusing, but it shouldn't be confusing. And most of the churches were early synagogues that simply accepted that the Messiah had come. Their form of worship didn't really change at all. Stephen, of course, when he speaks of Israel going through the wilderness, in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 6, he refers to Israel as the congregation as it was on its way through the wilderness. So Israel was the visible church of God. And uh, we too belong to the visible church of God 
on this earth. So we need to remember that. The story of Israel, in other words, is the story of the church. It is God's church in the old covenant as it moves into the new covenant. The second thing, and it follows from that, is that God's dealings with the people of Israel will be, in essence, the same as his dealings with ourselves too. You see the same principles there, people trying to live by works, others living by faith, God acknowledging faith, and God blessing faith. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, in the passage that we read, when he goes over the experiences of Israel, he says that all these things happen to them as examples or patterns for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, there would be no point in saying that if the lessons there weren't applicable today. No point at all. If you were to make a, a radical cleavage between the Church of God in the Old Testament and the Church of God in the New Testament, then there's no point looking at what, what they experienced and suffered because it's not going to be the same. But Paul's point is that it is the same. These things are written, he says, for us as examples for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. So it's always important to see the continuity in God's dealings with his people. I think it's important too to remember that Israel as a people were elect of God and that God's election cannot be reversed. And as a nation, they will be brought back into the church of God. Because the church of God today are God's Israel. And so the physical Israel will be called back in God's time into the new spiritual Israel of the church of Christ. Now, these things are just helpful uh, for background information here. Now, you'll remember that in the morning, um, I said that there were two uh, keys given to us to help us interpret what's going on in this passage. The first key uh, was the names that Moses gave to, the, gave to the place where these things happened. He gave the place two names, Massa and Meribah, or testing and quarreling or contention. And these names describe Israel's role in this incident. The people of God contended with Moses, and as Moses rightly discerns, their real contention is with God. And they also tempted God. They put him to the test. They tested his patience and long-suffering. They limited him, and they wearied him too with their contentions and their arguments. Now, we saw what that meant for us today, and I just want to leave it there. Tonight, let's turn to the second key that we're given for understanding this passage. And it's given to us in the words that Paul used there in the New Testament, where he says in 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, verse 11, he uses the striking words that the rock which followed them was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's through the Red Sea. Uh, you remember the sea was a wall on one side and on the other. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud. That is, as they passed through the waters, they were united to Moses. They were led by Moses. They identified with him. And afterwards, they all ate the same spiritual food. That's a reference to the manna, which was spiritually or miraculously provided by God and which symbolized spiritual meat and drink. And in verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. That's the water that came from the rock, which symbolized spiritual drink. For, he says, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. In other words, obviously, 
that rock symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say obviously because people come up with all kinds of strange interpretations of things that you would never dream of unless you had some kind of vested interest in dreaming them up in the first place. It's obviously symbolic language when Paul says the rock was Christ. What he means is the rock represented Christ. Like I say, surely that's obvious, just as it should be obvious when the Lord uh, took out the bread of the Lord's Supper and when he said, this is my body, should be obvious to us that the Lord means this represents my body. Let it speak to you of my body. It symbolizes it. Receive it as such. It's a strange interpretation of the text that insists that somehow the bread must become the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul also uses the unusual expression that the rock followed them. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And again, a A lot of early Jewish interpreters say that the rock somehow mysteriously moved with the people. Now, that that can't be the meaning of the apostle, that the rock actually moved with the people. Surely the more obvious understanding, well, I think there are two possible understandings of it. The first is that the water which flowed from the rock followed the people. In other words, it's just a very vivid or poetic way of saying that the rock followed them. In other words, the fruit of the rock or the water that flowed from the rock as it gushed through, it followed them in the wilderness. Or it might even be the case that what the apostle means is that the spiritual rock followed them. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. In other words, the Christ which the rock symbolized was the Christ who followed them. So either way, Both are true. Both are true in any case. They drank of the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, it's no surprise to find Christ uh, spoken of as a rock or compared to as a rock. And uh, I think as the experience of Israel went on in the wilderness, I think they understood more and more the significance of the experiences that they had themselves. Symbols and types are given to be understood. Symbols especially are meant to be understood at the time. But symbols and types are there to function as teaching devices. And I've no doubt that when the people of God, for example, just a few chapters later on, when they received instructions for the tabernacle, how it was to be built and the priesthood and the sacrifices and so on, They understood that these things were typical. They were foreshadowing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, foreshadowing things about his glorious person, the intricacy of the union between his divine and human natures, and foreshadowing the giving of himself as a sacrificial offering for the sins of the people. They understood these things. I, I believe myself quite firmly that the Old Testament church forgot uh, a lot of these things. And uh, we, we tend to forget that the church that the Lord Jesus Christ was born into was, was a very backslidden church, a church that needed to be taught again the first principles of the things of God. Uh, just because most of the people alive then didn't have a very good grasp of what the Old Testament meant didn't mean that their fathers didn't have a good grasp of these things. I mean, we can see ourselves how quickly uh, generations can lose things. I mean, a generation can hold something quite fast, and next generation has pretty much forgotten it, especially in a culture where very few books are to be found. Uh, We have material now recorded in books, which makes it easier to pass things down. But even with that being the case, things are still easily forgotten. And uh, we think that the Old Testament people thought, basically, as people did when Christ was around. Not so. Abraham saw the day of Christ. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he did see it. And he was glad. He rejoiced to see my day. That doesn't obviously just mean that he knew that that day was coming. 
but that he did see it. He saw that day, and he was glad with the vision that he had of it. So he understood in the resurrection of his own son Isaac, and he understood in his encounter with the mysterious Melchizedek, he understood the day of Christ, and he rejoiced to see it, and he was glad. And I'm quite sure that as Israel reflected on her experience here too, she would understand that Christ is a rock, that the Messiah is a rock for a particular reason, and that the water flowed out from him on particular conditions. Christ is a rock, capital R, because God is a rock, capital R. We are to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That's what the Jewish people sang, Psalm 95, or Psalm 18. He is my rock, and he that doth deliverance to me afford. And the Messiah was compared by Isaiah the prophet, or at least taking refuge in the shadow of the Messiah, was compared to taking refuge in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And God is a rock because he is strong, he is reliable, he's dependable, he's durable. He belongs not to the passing things, but to the everlasting things of the hills and the mountains. We are uh, small stones. The Lord Jesus Christ is a rock. And Israel is being taught here to see that the gift of the water comes from the rock of their salvation. That is the essential meaning of this passage. Now, to get proper spiritual benefit from that, let's open up these things a little bit as we're able to see what they are actually teaching. The first great lesson to learn here is that in order to quench our thirst, the rock has to be struck, first of all. The rock needs to be struck. And in connection with this striking, let's just notice three things. First of all, it's a violent strike. When Moses is told to hit the rock, he is actually told to strike it in verse 6. The word is very strong. It's the same word as is used in the psalm to describe it. It's the kind of striking you would do to someone to injure them or even to kill them. It's used for smiting someone in war. In other words, Moses wasn't meant uh, just to touch the rock. He, he was meant actually to really strike it hard with the staff that was in his hand, so much as to make a noise and to call attention to it. In other words, the people were meant to understand, as Moses was meant to understand, a causative relation between the striking of the rod and the gushing of the water. Not just a time signal, but a cause and effect signal. This rock must be struck in order for the water to come out. And as I mentioned in the morning, both Isaiah and the psalmist tell us that the rock split when it was struck. Now, I can't think that it was the power of the striking that made the rock split. I would think that would be impossible. But let's just say that God caused the rock to split at the point at which was struck. So it was to give the impression that the blow opened the rock, and therefore the streams of water came out. And I suppose in that respect, we're to think of the water desiring to come out. We're to think of the water already to come out. But it, com it could only come out once the rod had struck it. Now, water that was kept, as we'll see in a moment, grace. Um, in Isaiah 42, uh, the prophet compares God to a pregnant woman who is coming to the time of her delivery, anxious to uh, bring forth a child, in a hurry to bring forth a child. He compares God with that. And that's the kind of idea here, too, that God is as it were, in a hurry to let loose the stream 
but it can only be let loose once the rock is struck. The rod opened the rock. Now that was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this rock was struck, then so was that rock struck too. And he was struck violently. The words used in the Greek of the New Testament are violent also. He was smitten on the cheek in the Sanhedrin. That's the first time he was touched, as far as I'm aware. What I mean by that is touched with violence. It's remarkable that in spite of the intention of many people to inflict violence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they were not allowed to inflict violence upon him until he had agreed to take the cup in Gethsemane. So that from that point onwards, every experience that he had was a judicial infliction. It was a stroke. And so it's interesting that afterwards he is struck on the cheek by the Sanhedrin. We're also told by Isaiah that he gave his back to those who smote it. And of course, famously, he gave his cheek to those who pulled out the beard. These are very painful experiences, but there is a giving on the part of Christ, and that's a wonderful thing to behold. He gave his back to the smackers, and he gave his cheek to those who plucked out the beard. But for now, the point is that they struck his back, and they struck it with great violence. You'll remember that Pontius Pilate gave him over to be scourged, a desperate act on his own part to, to try and appease the wrath of the, of the Jewish people who were wanting his blood. But just like a dog who gets the scent of blood, uh, a little meat only increases the desire. And uh, Peter, uh, Pilate desired to quench their anger by scourging him. So out came the implement with its leather thongs and with pieces of bone attached to the leather thongs, which tore the skin from his back, desperately sore, sometimes exposing the muscles. But he gave his back to those who struck it. And as Isaiah tells us too in chapter 53, he was smitten. Smitten of God, he says. Well, let's leave that for a minute. But he was smitten and he was afflicted. Ah, the Lord Jesus Christ was struck. He was struck, as we'll see, for our sakes. The second thing it tells us is, as well as being a violent strike, it was also a judicial strike. There was something of the law in it. And dare I say, there was something righteous about it. The rod of Moses, which was not the same as the rod of Aaron, the rod of Moses symbolized the authority of God. It's a scepter, in other words. It's a scepter, just like the mace that lies in the House of Commons there. It's a scepter. It's a symbol of the Queen's authority over Parliament. And uh, this rod of Moses is a symbol of the authority of God. And so when Moses is told to take the rod and to strike with it, it is a judicial striking. The rod isn't being used here out of place. It's not being seized by Moses and used in anger for a purpose for which it never ought to be used. God says, you take my rod. I give you the authority to use the symbol of my authority. And with that rod, he says, strike the rock. The idea being conveyed, in other words, is that it is the punishment of God. And how fitting, in a sense, that this, this should take place in Horeb, the mountain of God, which seems to be interchangeable with the name Sinai for the same mountain. The idea is the law of God. Christ was punished righteously. Of course, it's a strange thing to say because there was no sin in him. He had done no violence, as the prophet had said. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
Uh, that covers the doings and the speakings. We could even go further and say that there was nothing out of place in his thought, but uh, there's no need to do that. But nonetheless, he was suffering by God's appointment. It was a punishment he was taking, a punishment that was in some sense merited, in some sense merited. And that takes me to the third thing, as well as being a violent strike and a judicial strike, it was a divine strike. Although Moses is wielding this rod, we have to understand that God commands it and God oversees it. I think that's the significance of verse 6 here, where the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock in full view of me, in full view of me, and with my approval you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So Moses and the elders that he takes with him, we're told that he takes elders from the people, they're aware that when they journey to the rock in Horeb, that God is present above the rock. Now, I'm not absolutely sure of the form uh, in which they saw God on the rock, although God does use the expression that he will stand I will stand, not just I will appear, but I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, which gives us the impression that it is a man. And I suppose the fact that he appears as a man makes us think of this as a kind of appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because we know that he often appeared as a man in the Old Testament before he became a man in the New Testament. These are two very different things. He appeared as a man in the Old Testament before he became a man in the New Testament. But there is a problem with that. There's a problem with seeing this theophany or this appearance of God as an appearance of Christ because quite clearly the rock itself is meant to function as the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that case, it doesn't really make any sense to see the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ above the rock. We are rather to think of what may be more difficult to think, and that is an appearance of God himself, the Father. Now, before you maybe balk at that a bit, can you just move forward to chapter 24 and uh, verse 1? And uh, in verse 1, God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, that's to Mount Sinai, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, these are Aaron's two sons in the priesthood, and seven, notice the representative elders here again, 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Then if you move on to verse 9, we're told of these people going up into God's presence. Now, these are mysterious words. Verse 9, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was, now we're not told any detail about his appearance except his feet. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, or lapis lazuli, and it was like the very heavens on its, in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. In other words, you would expect them to be struck dead by the appearance of God. On the contrary, so they saw God and they ate and drank. That expression, ate and drank, is understood by some people to mean that they simply lived. They saw God and lived. 
But I think it means more than that. I think it means that they had fellowship there in the presence of a God. The reason I think they describe his feet only is because that was the only glory, as it were, that, that they could see and that they could comprehend. The rest uh, was not something that they could lay hold of. It was too glorious and too splendid. It was simply enough to see the feet and underneath the feet to see this beautiful, a paved work of sapphire stone, uh, which was like heaven in its clarity. Not a, not a speck, not a flaw in it. Now, compare that. I could compare it to Ezekiel 1, but let's just jump that one and move to Revelation 4. It's best if you just move to it in your Bible. It's the last book of the Bible anyway. It's easy enough to find. Revelation 4. Page 1410. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, John is called up in the Spirit, as it were, into heaven. Um, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So he's being taken into the boardroom into the government room, into the executive place. Immediately, he says, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. Now, this is not Jesus. The reason for that you'll see in a second. This is a reference to the Father. He who sat there was like, now notice, There's no human likeness, at least nothing to do with a face or anything of that kind. He who sat there was like a jasper. It's all glory, in other words. It's a glory they they can't really look into. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. (laughs) What a strange way of describing someone sitting on a throne, like a jasper and a sardius stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Then his attention moves to around the throne where there's 24 thrones. I think we can see the Old and New Testaments united there. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So at the moment there is only a throne and one sitting on it and others surrounding it. And then from the throne, so from the throne itself proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. Before the throne, a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around it, four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. So, so far we have the Father and we have the Holy Spirit. And we have an emphasis on the angels and the elders who surround the throne. And then in chapter 5 and in the opening verse, we're told that in the right hand, now here we see the hand of the Father. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, there's a scroll written inside and on the back. That's the future sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll, to unfold the history of the world to come and to loose its seals, to let that history loose so that it comes to pass. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look look at it, not even to look at the scroll. So I wept much. But one of the elders in verse 5 said to me, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. And now look at verse 6. At last, a third figure on the throne. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God 
sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You'll notice that the visions of the Father, in other words, there may be glimpses of hands or of feet, such glimpses that you're actually scarcely able to look at that. But in terms of his actual countenance and appearance, no. It's sapphire. It's uh, sardis or jasper. Glory, glory, glory. Something that you cannot really look upon. Now, is that not what is present upon the rock? Not an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ but an appearance of God the Father. He is with the rock. He is superintending the rock. He is in charge of the proceedings when the rod is taken to smite the rock. It's not against the will of God what is happening. Calvary is not against his will. The smiting of the Son of God is not contrary to God's will. In fact, the very reverse is the case. Isaiah prophesies that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. No, that doesn't say that it pleased the Lord that he be bruised. But it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And the prophet says, speaking to God, when you have made his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. That in itself is a mysterious and a wonderful expression. One of the things people taunted him with at his crucifixion was that far from founding a dynasty, he was dying without wife and without child, without issue. Whatever foolish pretensions of kingship he had, they are obliterated by the crucifixion. Who shall declare his generation? Ah, but the prophet says, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall have a family, a royal seed, a royal seed, who will share the blessings of the royal house too. So it's a divine stroke. God is involved in this. It's a mysterious thing because the act itself is performed by sinful men. It's performed by sinful men. Uh, but God is able to do that. He is able to bring about righteous things through the unrighteous acts of sinful men, as God alone is able to do. And the fact of the matter is that from one perspective, we push the sinful men to the side, and all we see from that perspective is the Father wielding a rod and striking the Son, striking the Son, What's the result of this smiting? Well, we're told that water uh, gushed out of the rock. The rock split, of course. The rock split and water gushed out of it. Psalm 105 and verse 40. He, 41. He opened the rock and water gushed out and it ran in dry places like a river. How or when is that fulfilled? Well, I don't think, again, that that's difficult to answer. I suppose we could say in the first place that there's a kind of fulfillment when the soldier puts the spear into the side of the Lord Jesus Christ while he still hangs there upon the cross. And uh, famously, of course, he's dead already at that point, but we're told that blood and water came out of his side. So... The side is opened, the rock is struck, the rock is opened, and out comes blood and water. These represent, of course, the blessings of the new covenant. Blood and water is everything we need. Blood for pardon and the water for washing. That's enough to present us holy, without stain and without blemish, one day ourselves before the throne. But the real reference here is not actually to that, although it's partly to that. The ultimate reference is to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which came on Pentecost. The Spirit who came from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the gifts which the Spirit brought, which were the gifts given by the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in in, uh, Psalm 68, there's a reference to the the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul refers these verses to the ascension in his letter to the Ephesians. Thou hast, O Lord, most glorious, ascended up on high, and in triumph victorious, led captive captivity. Some translate that led captivity captive. And uh, it may seem strange, but again, both are true. But let's just keep it like this. He led captive captivity. Thou hast received gifts for men. So this is telling us that when the Lord ascended, he obtained a people and he obtained gifts for them. Even for such as did rebel. Well, how clear that comes before us in the incident. It was for rebels he received gifts. Rebels like you and me. Yea, even for them that God the Lord in the midst of them might dwell. Now, Christ, of course, foretold of the coming of the Holy Spirit himself. If you turn to John and uh, chapter 4, first of all, where he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. And that's page 1224. And the Lord is speaking to this woman about water. Now, this is the woman who was living with the fifth man in her life. He he was not her husband. And she was obviously a very sad woman. And the Lord is offering her water. Um, And she misunderstands the offer. She just thinks that he's going to to give water from, from the well. But the Lord had spoken of living water. Jesus answered and said to her in verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, isn't this a wonderful thought? The thought here is, internal to ourselves, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit that he gives, comes to take residence in such a way that he constantly irrigates our dry and barren souls. Unless, of course, we quench him to change the figure. You can't quench water, of course, so it's changing the figure. Unless you quench him or grieve him. Providing we don't do that, he will constantly irrigate our souls, springing up into into the fullness of everlasting life and all that that contains. A fullness of everlasting life. Move forward to chapter 7. And verse 37. That's page 1231, page 1231. Now, it's not long since we looked at this. Um, This is the feast of the tabernacles. And on the last day of that feast, that was the day on which the people went out in a ceremony to the pool of Siloam and took water from that pool and poured it out as a symbol of the Holy Spirit to come praying that God would send that spirit. And Christ is observing this. And on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Surely he cried out at that very point. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That water is me, just as the rock was me. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, where did the scripture say that? Where did the scripture say that out of his heart would flow rivers 
of living water. I wonder if it is partly a reference to the passage that we're studying, as well as other passages too, like Isaiah 55. Probably an amalgamation of a few passages. Come to me, he says, and I'll give you water. If you drink of it, you will never thirst again. And of course that came to pass. The Lord was struck on the Friday. He was in the tomb. And he rose again on that first new covenant Sabbath morning. And we have the coronation and the session when he sits down at the right hand of God. And as Psalm 110 tells us, he stretches out his rod and he sends the Holy Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost. And from that moment onwards, in a unique and special way, the Spirit of the risen Lord, the Spirit of the resurrection Lord, in resurrection power and resurrection knowledge, comes. He's poured out from himself, poured out into a dry, thirsty world, and into a thirsty, dry heart, where it becomes a perpetual fountain, as he said to the woman, a perpetual fountain of life until you are eventually finishing your course, brought up into the presence of God, where a constant river runs through the city. Israel, of course, received the water, which was spiritual drink. It symbolized what Christ gave. And in all that, God is saying, not just that he, as the rock, is the source of life, but that he somehow absorbs the guilt and the sin and the punishment. He takes it so that we can live. And that, friends, is why I think there's no chastisement involved in this incident at all. There's no punishment, nothing of that kind. What we have here, in a way, is a full and a complete type. There's not allowed to be any chastisement. There's not allowed to be any judgment because it is a type of Calvary. And what prevails at Calvary is just absolutely grace. Free, sovereign grace. All you can say at Calvary is that there is an astonishing act of wickedness in which the whole world is guilty, by which the Son of God is taken and crucified. It's the ultimate act of humanity's disapproval of God. It's the ultimate act of rebellion against God. It sums up what the fall did. It sums up who you are and who I am, that we took God, the God that was possible at last to touch, and we seized him and we crucified him. The blackest sin in the story of the world. And out of that, God took the most amazing act of grace to remind us that at one level we forget chastisements and things of that kind because the essence of the gospel is that we come with nothing and God gives us everything. That we deserve nothing and God gives us everything. And we're not to spend all our time beating ourselves up because we deserve nothing, because God has decided to take all our sin and shame and everything upon himself. As he hung there naked upon the tree, he took all that to himself so that you could live. Sin abounded. It abounded at this rock. It's ugly. I mean, what we looked at this morning is ugly, but it just pales into significance into insignificance compared to Calvary. But so does the gushing of water. I mean, this was a marvelous miracle to see water streaming out from a rock and following the people for miles. Like a sea, the psalm says, just pouring out like the sea. That's nothing, nothing in comparison with the grace that flows from that smitten Lord who still bears the wounds, the opening of his own body, the grace that streams from him, freely available for you and for me. 
to all of you here tonight who have tasted that goodness yourselves, how favored you are and how blessed you are. You are a people to be envied by the world. It's possibly true that the world pities you. Well, more pity the world then if they pity you because it's the world that's to be pitied and it's you that's to be pitied if you have not experienced this yourself. Will you not ask the Lord to accept you as you are, just as you are, to take you and just yield yourself to him and you'll experience as well ever more fully this bubbling stream which is full of everlasting life. Let's uh, sing in conclusion. No, we won't. Sorry, it's force of habit. It's understandable after 30 odd years. Um, Let's read Psalm 107, page 383. Page 383, Psalm 107, at verse 10. Such as shut up in darkness deep, and in death's shade abide, whom strongly hath affliction bound, and irons fast have tied, because against the words of God they wrought or worked rebelliously, And they the counsel did condemn, or they despised it. They set it aside, the counsel of him that is most high. And then what God works, their heart he did bring down with grief. They fell, no help could have. In trouble then they cried to God, he them from straits did save. He out of darkness did them bring, and from death's shade them take. These bands wherewith they had been bound asunder, quite he break. Oh, that men to the Lord would give praise for his goodness then, and for his works of wonder done unto the sons of men. May the Lord bless his own word and our meditation on it. Let's receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.